This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. In each episode, we interview an expert and an author to explore the connections between stories and STEM. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle, a writer, book lover, and the director of NIU STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an educator and engineer and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today's episode is going to start a little bit differently because of breaking news in the children's book industry. Here's one of my favorite stories to explain why we do what we do at STEM Read. I told this story on Tuesday at the Every Student Succeeds Act conference. What does STEM Read do? One of the things that we do is we make mothers cry. With STEM Read, I go to a lot of high schools, and one of the high schools that I've worked with has this great sci-fi club. They have over 100 kids that come every Friday night, and they play video games, they watch anime, they cosplay. I was speaking to the group, and I said, okay, has anyone here not read The Maze Runner? And just one kid raised his hands, and all his friends were like, dude, what? You haven't read it? That's crazy. And so I said, here. I have a copy of the book. Take it home with you. The next week, I got a call from the school principal, and the principal said, we needed to tell you, you made this kid's mom cry. For those of you who haven't read The Maze Runner, it's about a group of teenage boys who are trapped in this giant maze. Every day, they run the maze looking for a way out, and every night, they're terrorized by these giant mechanical slug monsters. So I was like, oh, was it the mechanical slug monsters? Was it that part where they exile the guy to certain death? Uh, Was it the fact that teens are being experimented on by these weird shadowy figures? And they said, no, it wasn't anything to do with the content. This woman came home and she saw her son sitting on the couch reading a book and she cried because she had never seen him read for pleasure before. STEM Read hosted author James Dashner in April 2013. It was one of our first large-scale field trips, and its success helped us prove that students and teachers were hungry for fun, STEM-based activities based on popular books. I still have teachers and students tell me that our field trip based on The Maze Runner was one of the best educational events they've ever attended. Even as I was telling that story about making that mom cry on Tuesday and recommending the book to teachers all across the state, and especially to a woman who was a teacher at an alternative high school for troubled teens, news of James Dashner's serial sexual harassment was surfacing. When we titled this episode, Speaking Out Without Talking Down, we had no idea what kind of news was about to rock the publishing industry and SCBWI, the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, of which I'm a member. Since I gave that talk about making mothers cry, James Dashner was dropped by his agency, his publishing house, and has issued a statement on Twitter publicly apologizing for his sexual misconduct. Where does that leave us? The Maze Runner books have meant so much to so many people. They have been a gateway to reading for thousands of reluctant readers who had never picked up a novel before someone handed them the Maze Runner. They have been a gateway to STEM learning to thousands because we put the book into the hands of so many students and teachers. Books take us on an emotional journey. They help us grow and learn and change. They help us understand our world and escape from our reality. The Maze Runner means so much to so many people. We shouldn't let the actions of one person, even the book's author, take that experience away from us. Once a book is published, once it gets into the hands and heads and hearts of the readers, it doesn't belong to the author anymore. It belongs to the reader. 
It belongs to the fans. Maze Runner is our book now, not his. The team at Stemread has talked about how we should react. We decided to maintain our lesson plans and educator resources for the Maze Runner, but to remove Dashner's author talk, we decided to link to fandom websites rather than to his author page. Is this the right move? We don't know. We're running headlong into uncharted territory. We're going to screw up. We're going to hit some walls. Unfortunately, we might face monsters. But for those who have spoken out about sexual misconduct, we believe you and we support you. We want to start a dialogue and look for answers. We're going to put together an episode on the collision of the Me Too movement and children's publishing. Look for that in the coming weeks on the Stem Read podcast. This week's episode is not directly related to the topic, but Me Too and SCBWI both came up in the conversations. This episode was finalized before the news broke. Teachers and librarians, how are you handling this situation? We look forward to your feedback. For now, enjoy the week's episode. Speaking up without talking down. Our topic today is speaking up without talking down. We're going to interview Paul Castle, Dean of the College of Visual and Performing Arts at Northern Illinois University. And then we're going to talk to children's book author Ruth Spiro. Dean Castle is a certified trainer for the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. He trains STEM experts on the Alda Method, which uses improv and acting techniques to help experts connect to their audience in a more personal way. Ruth Spiro is a children's book author and freelance writer. Her Baby Loves Science board book series is published by Charles Bridge and includes Baby Loves Aerospace Engineering, Baby Loves Quarks, Baby Loves Thermodynamics, Baby Loves Quantum Physics, and four new titles that are coming in 2018. So Kristen, babies and Alan Alda, huh? <laughs> I, I feel like the connection is obvious, but absolutely. But let's talk a little bit about how we came to bring these guests together. I don't know about you, but when I really love something, I like to talk about it. I don't know if you've noticed that, <laughs> you know, the latest steampunk book I read and I'm like, hey, steampunk, let's talk about it. You, some would say too much. No, it's I am passionate <laughs> and I want you to be passionate about it as well. If you love something, you want to talk about it. You want others to love it as much as you do. I really want you to come to work someday. Full steampunk gear. That's that's my goal. <laughs> that's that's your dream? It's my dream because I love it. So the same holds true, I think, not just for pop culture, but when we work in a field we're passionate about. We want to talk to people about it. We want to tell them why we're passionate about it. But it doesn't always come across well. I think back to when I was doing my own research, you know, family and friends would be like, hey, how's your research going? And this would launch me into this long jargon filled monologue about, you know, social constructivism theory and trying to get interdisciplinary lessons in communities of practice and about their their eyes glaze over. Yeah. About like, yeah, that look. I, that I feel like right I there. just uh, I just died a little just listening to you talk about what you talked about <laughs> to them. <laughs> so I found the best way to reach them is to help them connect with the topic. They're not going to be passionate about it if they don't understand it. It's, you know, kind of like describing the plight of the house elf to somebody who's never read Harry Potter. They're just not going to get it. 
we need to be able to communicate the things we love in a way that people can get and start where they're at, connect it to something that's relevant to them. So when we talk about speaking up without talking down, we really want to talk about meeting people where they are and helping them get where you want them to go. And that's what our guests are so great at doing. Here's our interview with Paul Castle, Dean of the College of Visual and Performing Arts at NIU and a certified trainer for the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. I'm Paul Castle. I'm currently the Dean of the College of Visual and Performing Arts at Northern Illinois University. I come by it honestly. I have an MFA in acting, and I was an actor in New York for many years. I was in a long run of an off-Broadway show whose name is Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. It's a true story. (laughs) It ran for five years, but I could only take it for about one. Having a lead role in an off-Broadway play is pretty cool, but If you get tired of it after 400 shows or so, you have to start wondering, hmm, is this really the life for me? It just so happens I've stumbled into a teaching opportunity the following summer, fell in love with teaching, and quickly found out that the university was the level I needed to be at. It's because I love my subject. I love my students, but I love my subject. Vampire lesbians of Sodom. Sodom. Wow. I think that's a lot to digest. That's a whole nother podcast. Oh, it is. (laughs) It's actually, he's a, the the playwright's a really interesting guy, Charles Bush, and he's written a number of plays. It began as a drag show in the East Village Uh and uh, just got a cult following. And uh, he's actually, he's an amazing performer. So it's fun to be in. I got to make a lot of people laugh. That's excellent. So now you're looking at the connections between acting and science. So what does acting have to do with science? Acting is like physics. They both deal with the play of energy. Physics investigates the play of energy between subatomic particles, but acting investigates the play of energy between people. And harnessing that energy helps us use it more efficiently. Good acting is a better delivery system for scientists. Beyond that, the hows and whys of acting are really interesting. Acting is just the application of energy to a task. That's all it really is. We all do it all the time without even knowing it. But in the theater, you compress that so it's visible and perceivable to an audience. And to do that, you have to harness your energy and focus it in very specific ways. So the study of how you train people to do that is actually very interesting. And it led me from starting just learning my lines and how to make people laugh to how do I teach this to someone else so they can focus their energy. Then think, why is this even happening? What's happening? And it led me to, from the philosophy of art to neuroscience, evolutionary studies, and into the nature of consciousness. I'm really a broad reader, but these are, they're all part of how and why we're human, which is a a pretty deep mystery that, you know, luckily will keep us entertained for thousands of years to come, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) So, I mean, some of the things I look at is what are the necessary and sufficient causes of an impulse, an urge to satisfy a need that result in behavior, How are those impulses shaped by our consciousness and our environment? What happens when an audience is moved by an actor? And that literally happens. They are literally moved by an actor. And how does that happen? And how do we train people to do it so when they can do it when the curtain goes up or the director says, action? They're interrelated. And science and and art are actually two sides of the same coin. They're, They're both artists and scientists are explorers and experimenters. One experiments, you know, with hypotheses that lead towards either results or failures. And the same thing happens with an artist. They have an idea, a hypothesis. How do I express X through Y? And I play around with it until I figure it out. Our our methods are are not that different, really. They're both investigatory and revelatory. How does an actor move 
an audience member? Well, we don't really know for sure, but this is where my reading and my research has led me to um, to believe. About 20 so years ago, some scientists in Italy were working with macaque monkeys, which are a really good subject because they're so very close to, um, they're, they're the primates closest to humans in a lot of ways. And a graduate student, it turns out, was feeding the monkey um, and had left the monkey hooked up. They were looking at motor neurons. And what happened was as the graduate student was feeding himself, we don't know, we, the evidence isn't clear whether it was a peanut or a banana. There's great discussion about that. <laughs> Um, but the, the graduate student was eating and noticed that the whatever the seismograph that showed the motor neuron activity, I don't know the technical word, sorry, <laughs> was the same, showed the same pattern for when the monkey itself was eating. So that led to what is discovery of a disputed idea called the mirror neurons. And there's definitely evidence, concrete phys- physical evidence that exists, mirror, mirror neurons exist in primates. It's less clear th- that it's in humans. Evolutionary studies suggest that Things are retained evolutionary as they develop because they're useful. What essentially is, is when I make an intentional gesture, like I'm going to pick up your water bottle, when I do that, my motor neurons that fire, you're, you mirror those motor I neurons. I wanted, right. wanted to grab my water it, bottle. <laughs> it's what, what this guy Galise um, said. I, can't, I think it's Vittorio Galise, G-A-L-E-S-E, said, it is action understanding at a pre-conscious level. And from an evolutionary point of view, it makes a lot of sense. So if I do a gesture and you're not sure how to assess its threat or opportunity, you know, but you, you know, through a conscious activity, through the mirror neuron system, you know whether that's a threat or opportunity and you behave appropriately. You would approach or withdraw depending on that threat or opportunity. So literally when an actor moves on stage, and, not, and that's not just physical movement, but emotional movement as well, that's mirrored in the audience's minds and in literally in their bodies. So as I do intentional gestures that appear to be Hamlet, you're experiencing Hamlet yourself. The theory is we're built to do that very thing. It makes a lot of sense, especially as we moved out of tribal groups and we're encountering other beings and not sure how to assess the threat or opportunity. We had to detect intention. And so theater is kind of a game of detecting intention because, of course, the second part of the evolution, if someone develops a skill or a, a suite of behaviors that's really useful, someone, the predator is going to develop a skill to overcome that. So you have detection deception, and you see that across the animal kingdom. But in humans, it's particularly devious. We're actually not really very good liars, but we're really good <laughs> believers. We are, Our default switch in my understanding, is on the belief system. You've heard probably the phrase willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible phrase, and it was invented by a critic, and shame on him. Uh, <laughs> um, but really, audiences don't go with that disposition. They go and prove it. They come in, take me. Take me on the journey, the imaginary journey. Our default switch is on belief. So it's a willingness to believe. And because of that, we develop capacities to deceive, to mask our intentions, and we can play upon that very human fact of the tendency to believe. And only through experience do we begin to, I don't know if I can trust you, but most of it, and look at it in children, their switch is on trust. It has to be because they wouldn't survive unless they trusted their parents completely. So it's a really interesting area of research, and we still have lots of ways to go. And I know the neurophysicists who might be listening to this were just ripping their hair out going, we don't have any proof of mirror neurons. It is a definitely contested area. But it's, for me as an artist, it's really interesting. And I'm, I work more in you know, theoretical and imaginary worlds. 
I'm not worried about proving this contention. For me, it's a conceptual convenience. It's a way for us to get our heads around it because we're metaphorical beings. And so how we perceive the world is really metaphorical and mediated. And it gets really weird and interesting when you start even down. That's how I got to the nature of consciousness. You know, it's... It gets very deep very quickly. <laughs> I was going to say, that's fascinating. It's fun. It's <laughs> it is, fun. It's a lot of fun. And, and when, what boils down to it is that it doesn't matter. Any of that matters. If you're moved, if you like what you're seeing, if you're compelled to watch a person on stage doing imaginary things, who cares? Something's happening, but it's cool to think about what is that something? So how does this relate to STEM experts? Right. Um, I sort of have to get into the idea of the Alda Center for Communicating Science, uh, but it goes well beyond that. My second job was at Stony Brook University, and they have a medical school there. And one of the things you may not know is actors earn their living sometimes impersonating sick people. It's true. They, <laughs> for doctors to practice diagnosis. And so I would train the actors to work with the doctors at Stony Brook Medical Center to exhibit behaviors, you know, signs of illnesses that doctors would then have to diagnose. And then word got out that I did this sort of shenanigans, and then the math department called me in to help them be more effective performers. They couldn't understand with their back to the, the, the students scribbling, you know, calculus on the, that they couldn't see it, that that wasn't totally fascinating to the students. <laughs> and so I coached them on their performance as teachers. And at the same time, uh, I hired a woman, Valerie Lance Geffro, who's now the director of the imp- of improv at the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. So that's all going on in my own life, right? Meanwhile, Alan Alda, star of MASH, later the host of Scientific America, was got really involved in the second part of his life on, in science. And what he noticed, and you can go to the Alda Center website, aldacenter.org. Um, I'm not affiliated officially, and I'm not. I have no contractual. Um, any financial incentives with the, the center. I'm going to call him Alan because that's more fun. I've, I've met him a couple times. We're not really on a first name basis. But call him Al. Gay yeah. gay. No, you cannot call him Al. <laughs> Alan. It's definitely Alan. Anyway, so um, he knows that scientists, once they started talking in a relationship with him, they just opened up and they explained so much more effectively their work and their research because they got excited about it. We have a tendency to train people to sort of deliver data. What Alan noticed was that this was a lot more fun and a lot easier for him to understand. And so we thought, how can we scale that up? How can I get scientists to do that on a larger scale than just rather one-on-one? And so he started shopping around this idea. He, he looked at his own training as an actor that was based in improvisation and the improvisation of Viola Spolin. She, her partner was a woman, Neva Boyd, who was a school teacher. So they began teaching theater techniques, improv games to kids. And Viola Spolin also happens to be the mother of Paul Sills, who is the founder of Second City Improvisation here in Chicagoland. Wow. Yeah. Six degrees of science I know. separation. Isn't that wild? <laughs> anyway, so Alan studied with, uh, at Second City. I think that's right. But he studied improvisation that was based on the work of Viola Spolin, which is really cool. And she talks about seven aspects of spontaneity. And Alan thought, well, I can uh, teach scientists improv techniques and they become more effective performers. We're losing the battle of hearts and minds in the in the public about what science is and what it can do for us, as you see in the skepticism for climate change and even evolution. It's hard to imagine that's still debated, but it is debated. And a lot of people mistrust science for actually probably good reasons, not because of the failure of the science itself, but our failure to communicate it effectively. And that's what Alan's trying to solve with this approach. And I think what we all try to do in a classroom as well. Uh, I was reading a book recently, uh, Richard Prum, P-R-U-M, and he talked about the evolution of beauty. It's a really cool book. Great book. Anyway, he ta- he's one of these scientists who got called out by the 
con- by Congress for spending a couple hundred thousand dollars to study the sex life of ducks. And that was used as an example <laughs> of a terrible waste. But if you read the science, it's actually really, really important. And it actually speaks even to the Me Too movement that's going on right now. How we understand animal behavior is related to how we understand human behavior. It's very intense. But unfortunately, what you see on the title is, you know, habits of duck conjugal relations or whatever the the title of the abstract was. It was much worse than that, I'm sure, and much less understandable. <laughs> but so people pick up on that and go, aha, see, we're wasting money on this. Look at this. Who who cares about this? Exactly. Ducks can let ducks do what ducks do. Oh, right. <laughs> and right. let's not worry about and it. And let's not like, why are we spending good taxpayer money on these things? But there are really good reasons. And it shows an, a general mistrust in the higher education itself. And we see this across the country right now in the cultural conversations. And it's the one we cannot afford to lose. We can't. And so Alan saw that years ago, and he's been working very hard for the last, I guess, 15 years or so to try to move the needle on this. And it's actually happening. Scientists are seeing the value of it. The problem is we've spent most of our careers talking to ourselves and not talking to others. And we're not generally trained to teach. Most teachers here on campus are not trained to teach. And they're certainly not trained to perform. And so we want to provide that service because it's actually a skill that's rather easy to acquire. It's not easy to get good at it, but it's easy to acquire because the fundamentals are really basic because all art activity is actually very basic stuff. Marking, moving, enacting, sounding, that covers pretty much all the arts right there. We already do all that stuff, but we can do it well enough, I think, to convince, to sway hearts and minds. And we have to, it's urgent. We get feedback on some of our presentations that are like, you guys were actually funny. I I didn't hate being at this. And we're like, yes, we know we're funny. Thank you for validating us. But it's like, why doesn't why doesn't everybody do that? It's yeah. a good question. I don't know. Some people are not very funny. It's true. Yeah. You have to play to your strengths. That's one of the things about the training, too, is that the direction, be yourself. How do you organize to do that? Uh, you just, I'm, you know, but for the radio. But myself sucks? Right. Exactly. That's one thing. But, you know, but we don't know how to do that. You can't be, you simply are. The things that you can do in performance and acting is doing. And so what I try to do is train you to do, to do things and then trust that the things that you do. We talked about the money note. Everyone's got a thing they do well. Play to that. If you're not funny, don't try to be funny because that's not funny. <laughs> that that yeah, was funny. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but if, you, if you're quiet and you make good personal one-to-one connections, we can use that and develop that. So you can be a very effective performer if need be. The actors who are most compelling and the presenters who are most compelling are the ones who are authentic. And one of your questions was about spontaneity, and that's what spontaneity is. It's a sense of authenticity. And the audience, through the mirror neurons, can trust something that's authentic. It's not masked. The intention isn't masked. It's revealed. So if you allow yourself, let yourself alone, then your intentions are clear and people will naturally come towards you because that's what our impulse is. So trusting yourself, trusting your audience, super important in being an effective communicator. But first you have to get rid of all that baggage or at least relieve yourself of some of that baggage of what you think it means. Stand up straight, look them in the eye, pretend that the audience is naked. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, you go through all these rules when you're being taught how to present. And right, and the failure of presentation is essentially it's passive. I, I was thinking about it, so I wrote something down. I have to read it to you. It, it, it's like present, presenting versus performing, right? It's like having a plate of food put in front of you. It might look good, but you have to do all the work to digest it. 
right? And if the food, if it's food you've never seen before, you may not even know where to start. You know, if you've been to a foreign country and you look at some of these, you're like, oh my goodness, do I? I was in China last spring and we went to breakfast and it's not a breakfast I was ever familiar with. I literally did not know how to start. I had to be coached through that to understand it. But when presentations generally just lay the food out and say, there it is, what else do you want? Because the assumption is you already know what's on the plate. You know, and sometimes eating requires special skills like chopsticks. And whether it's chopsticks, chopsticks or a mass spectrometer, if an audience isn't familiar with those things, they're not going to be able to digest the information. And when you present, it's passive, just laid out. Now, if you're adept at chopsticks, then you're going to be fine. But if you're not, you're going to go hungry. People get resentful when they get bollocksed by, I don't know what to do with this information. I don't know how to digest it. So we've got to feed them. We've got to coach them through that. And it can only be done through relationship. You've seen diners, drive-ins, and right? Mm -hmm. You know, guy leads us through. You know, he relishes it. You know, he's performing the taste of food so we understand. And even though we're not tasting it, we have an experience of it because there's an emotional content to it. And he's really authentically himself in spite of his goofy backwards sunglasses and all his shenanigans, right? But he helps us understand the food that he's eating and, and presenting to us, performing. He literally performs the food so we can get a taste of it, which is so cool. That show always makes me so hungry. No, same. But really all performing, the difference is presenting and performing. Performing is active because I'm creating a relationship. We're doing it right now. You know, I'm sort of teaching, but really what I'm doing is we're having, we're having a friendly conversation peer-to-peer about, oh, this cool thing I'm involved with, right? I just went to hear, whether it's an album, you know, album, I'm dating myself, whether it's a song or whatever. <laughs> Either back in now. Right, that's true. <laughs> Performance is about creation or maintaining a relationship, and that's what makes it more effective in performing. We're creating relationship. You know who you are, so you know what to do. You know what to do with the information. If I'm the coach and you're the trainee, then you know how to sort of give yourself over to the information. Where if you don't know who you are and the, and the presenter doesn't know who they are, everyone's in this sort of state of shock and they can't process. And so that's why they get boring. Because what do you do when you don't know who you are? You just shut down like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. So I'm just going to ignore it, go to sleep. But as soon as you make someone laugh, oh, we're friends. That's a relationship you're asserting. You get the joke. Oh, so that eases things. And suddenly I know who I am and I can hear you more effectively. I can take in the information from you more effectively. It becomes an opportunity as opposed either to a threat, which is what we're really battling against because people are looking at science as a threat to their understanding. They're made to feel terrible because they feel dumb, which is awful. We would never do that to children we're teaching. Well, I hope we would never do that. <laughs> but we do it all the time to yeah. lay audiences. Mm-hmm. There's this, and that's why we get a terrible reputation sometimes, you know, of snobbery. Rather than saying, I have this beautiful bit of science I'm dying to share with you. I talk one way to you, but to my peers, I'll talk another way. I can skip ahead, skip a lot of stuff when I'm talking to my fellow theater people because we know all the jargon. We all know the jive. So that's, that's fine. But when we change audiences, we have to change our behavior. We just can't people come, oh, you're so smart, Mr. So-and-so. Let me bow before you. That's No one wants to. Who wants to do that? Nobody. Yeah, I've noticed that. I've had conversations where I catch myself where it's like, I think I just spewed out 10 minutes of jargon. and I don't even know what I said anymore. So how could you care about what I said right. if exactly. I lost? I got bored <laughs> five minutes ago. <laughs> right. But we're, you know, unfortunately, we're trained to do that because part of jargon is being inculcated in in the mystery of the, it's almost a mystique, it's almost a cult-like thing, where 
the initiated know the language. Those who aren't are out. It's, so it's a little self-serving. We have to be modest and we have to be humble before our audiences. Here's a great example. You can always tell an actor a really good one by how they bow. The actor who really drops the head and gives, literally offers their head to the audience as all in service to you, those are people who serve the work and serve each other and serve the audience ultimately. The actors who bow with it and they keep their head up and they're looking at the audience. Who's clapping? Who's not clapping? <laughs> you know, they don't trust their audiences. you know. And those kind of actors you have to start to wonder about. You can tell a lot about a person, how they acknowledge their relationship to the audience. And you know, this is stuff that you probably go, I never thought of that, but... The second you, I, I make this observation available to you, you go, I know just who he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. You can say the same with <laughs> like, comics. Oh, it's that guy. Yeah. <laughs> that guy doesn't trust the audience. No wonder I've always felt a little funny about that. But that's our job as teachers and scientists and, and artists is to communicate. Galileo and Leonardo da Vinci had no problem communicating because they were connected to the people. And that's what all Alan is talking about is connections. He says it right there on his website. And I actually think at NIU we have a great opportunity to even expand on that through data visualization, data oralization, making sound out of data, and, um, and dramatization of data, acting it out literally so people understand it, not just in an intellectual but a visceral, emotional level. That's where change begins. I don't change my mind because I think so. I change my mind because I feel so. I want to come back to this idea of spontaneity okay. and the seven aspects of spontaneity because okay. I've looked at... <laughs> I don't know if I remember them all. You tick them off right now. <laughs> right, right. Um, approval, disapproval, games, um, uh, physicalization, audience, uh, bringing theater back into life. Oh, that's five. I can't remember. <laughs> They're well, really great, though. And yeah. Everyone should read this chapter. It's a short chapter. and everyone should. They'll be in the show notes. That's okay. right. We'll put them in the show Perfect. notes. No, I think it's interesting when we were at your workshop and when I looked at some of the videos on the Alan Aldo website, all these very serious STEM experts pretending that they're throwing a volleyball back and forth mm -hmm. and, and things like that. And, you know, it was interesting to see, because I feel like we're pretty loosey-goosey kind of people, so we're like, I got a volleyball. You know, and... Um, you like to play. We like to play. Exactly. And then there were people who, like, at the first the first few games, like, could not do it. And and so I'm. what is that connection? Why is the spontaneity important? And um, how does that translate into what the STEM experts need to be doing? Well, I think spontaneity is important because people don't have it. Like I said earlier, spontaneity indicates authenticity. You can trust behavior that's spontaneous because it's related to what's happening in the moment. When people mask their feelings and withhold their impulses, we can feel that withholding. We can't name it. We go, something, they're not telling the whole story here. And so we naturally have an impulse to withdraw because we don't, we can't evaluate threat and opportunity. So by freeing ourselves of inhibitions and becoming literally more spontaneous, so we're dealing with what's happening right in front of us and with dealing with who's in front of us as well, then our behavior becomes more free and open and trustworthy. So I think that's why spontaneity is so important. The problem is, of course, we've been so trained to, in fact, mask our feelings. We're not supposed to show emotions as scientists or as teachers. We're not supposed to vulnerability because that's somehow a sign of weakness. So my first task in dealing with people who are untrained, and it even goes for actors, is to sort of do an emotional triage, not, not to pry into their emotions, but to let people trust their feelings. Because feelings are happening instantly, moment to moment. You don't have to go to a room and think about something sad to be sad. Something happens instantly you're sad. We're built to do it. We don't have to do anything. 
you're sad right now to some degree. It's just the way it is. You're a little sad, a little happy. This is life. We're contingent creatures and stuff happens and we deal with it, right? But we've trained ourselves to sort of hold in those impulses because we're afraid or we're trying to maintain some sort of illusion of who we are for other people or trying to protect ourselves. Who knows why? So the first step is to loosen all that up. And games are the easiest way to do it. If you're not afraid of making a fool of yourself and everyone's laughing, then suddenly, ah, you can see people's eyes light up. I don't know what the scientific thing of that is, but we all see it when someone's, oh, look, their light, their eyes are so full of life. They're lighting up. You know, we see it in our students when they get an idea. Oh, pick me. I got it. I don't know what that, you know, if we stuck someone in MRI, what would come out? You know, what would be the data of that? I don't care. You know, I just know it when I see it. It doesn't make it less real. We have to acknowledge with some humility that there's an awful lot we don't know. We have to begin with that to open people up, to engage with the other. And that, that spontaneity is what's much more fun to watch because what you're hanging on to is, first of all, you trust the person, so they're not going to get hurt. But you're like, oh, what's going to happen next? And that's the story of theater. The whole theater is built on the one question, what's going to happen next? It seems like, like what you just did, you did a gesture that seemed, it arose out of something, mm-hmm. but it seemed really authentic. It didn't seem, I am now going to perform a friendly gesture. <laughs> My hand should go forward, meaning I am talking to you at right. this moment. And you think that's exactly the problem with so many presentations is that they, t- they take a power pose or they're, they're all in their heads. They're in the there and then rather than the here and now. Audiences are often in the there and then in the future, like, oh, what am I going to do next? Or can I, I'm <laughs> when is this going to be over? When is this going to be over? And the presenters are, remember, thinking, I got to do my poses. I got to, here's my next slide. And, and so they're not in the moment, which is another word, we, a phrase we use for spontaneity. Dealing with what's happening right now and dealing with the person in front or people in front of you right now. You said something before that was about, what does this have to do with me? And I think that's the essential question when you're talking to any audience, you have to connect it back to them. How do you relate things to people? How do you make them relate to you? How do you win the battle of hearts and minds? Well, I think that's a really good question. And I think I'll use my own work as an example, because I can't speak to the scientists who studies climate. They understand the importance but I, I th- at the end of the workshop, I talked about the qualities of presence and how there's um, sort of three aspects of it. And it's confidence, charisma, and conviction are the three C's. You know, a charisma is like that ability to play an action. And we talked about push, pull, hold, release. Ev- release. Everybody's got that thing that they can do. Either come here, come here, come here, pull, come along with me, or push. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. You know, the coach kind of push too. All right, or hold, listen, listen to this great story great stories do this hold too so everyone's got their their money note the thing that they do that's charisma the thing that's just natural to their abilities confidence is i here's the task before me and i know i can do it i know i can do it i, I think i use the example of harry potter in, in the patronus spell he later said how did you know you could do a patronus well i did it because i saw that i did it you know it's a that mm-hmm. weird time story but mm-hmm. it's the same with us we we've imagined or worked through and we know with great confidence that we can accomplish the task. So those two important parts, charisma and confidence, and then conviction is belief. And belief comes from study. Belief comes from deep understanding. And and that's where the scientist has to bring to bear that their understanding of climate or evolution or whatever the case may be is grounded in a truth that they've devoted their lives to. And if that comes across, all those things will compel an audience's attention and they'll be willingly go along for the ride because the switch is already on belief. We lose them when we don't honor 
the world that they're in, and then we're not authentic and spontaneous. For my work, I believe everyone should be their best selves. Training to be an actor is about not pretending to be someone else, but allowing those aspects of yourself that are in service to this particular material. Everyone can do that because theater is just about relationships that change. We're always, we're constantly in relationship, and, and those relationships always need to be managed or created, whether it's the person we love or the person we want to convince or the person we want to leave us alone, whatever <laughs> the case may be. We, when we organize ourselves around those kind of relationships, managing those relationships. So I think, I guess that's what it is. If you have a belief in what you're talking about and, what, and you have a deep understanding of it, you allow your care to be present in the room People are going to come along with you. And the other part is asking questions. How are you doing? Does this make sense? Have you connected to this? Have I reached you? When we're presenting, it's all one direction. And what all Alan talks is what we're really doing is creating relationship. So we're always got to be checking in with how it's going. And that makes an audience feel honored. It's like, oh, I matter. <laughs> right? You care about me. Right, exactly. And if, if we're just yelling at people about climate change, what's wrong with you? you got to get this. <laughs> then people are going to... There are some people who are going to go, right, that makes sense. What have I been doing? But a lot of people are going to go, what are you yelling at me? Help me understand. And we can't lose that battle. Can't. I, I liked the activity we did in the workshop, um, the time traveler, because mm, mm-hmm. that really made you think about how could I take this person who doesn't understand my environment and connect with them so that they, they get it. Do you want to very briefly explain what the time traveler Oh, um. sure. So the game is you have a cell phone and suddenly someone from the 16th century appears and you have to explain how a cell phone works to someone from the 16th century who also believes in witches. And the goal is for you not to be characterized as a witch. So you can't use magical <laughs> terms. Try that at home, friends. <laughs> it was not easy. Yeah. <laughs> but you can do it and you because you start asking questions. Do you ever want to communicate to someone who's far away? Don't you, do you ever miss people who've, you know, gone away from home? Yeah, me too. Wouldn't it be great if there was a way we could connect to them in a way that we could communicate to them like instantaneously and, and in a real way so they could hear you? Like how, how loud can you yell? So I begin, I ask questions and I begin to, to engage the person by understanding what their needs are and then also seeing what their competencies are, right? And isn't that what a teacher is always doing is assessing where is the learner and you have to be again, humble in service of the learner. So people often think about writing and communications and acting as soft skills. Ah. (laughs) So why is it important that students know these things along with their, you know, more serious studies? Right. And I I really, I mean, just on a side note, I really resent that kind of framing. Again, it's using soft skills and emotional kind of things. It begins to sound pretty gendered you know, in a very negative way. And I think that that's terrible. So I would say the first thing is not to use those soft skills, but we're talking about relationship skills, communication skills. Those are real things because we're always in relationship. Every act of communication is a performance, is an act of communication. So it's the very fabric, whether it's writing or speaking or simply sitting silently and embodying, we're communicating signs and signals of threat and opportunity all the time, constantly. And so, of course, you want to become a master of that. We take it for granted because we are so adept. You know, kids are really quite clever. They pick up on those cues very quickly. So they're called soft because they seem easy. I've seen high schools who are starting those real-world skill academies. A lot of it comes down to this idea of career readiness. 
How would you go on an interview? How would you sell yourself? Even skills like, why is it important to show up to work on time? And here's an absolute truth. People only do what they have to do. They never do what's good for them unless they have to. You know, we're like the rat pressing the pleasure bar in that famous experiment. <laughs> we, we are, There's, you know, and that's okay. We have to find different sources of pleasure and different bars to press. And so if a student isn't asked to learn those kind of things, they're not going to learn them. So I understand those impulses, but we have to find a way to overcome them and create environments in which people can encounter one another authentically spontaneously and safely so they can learn to manage relationships because relationships if you've been in one are pretty messy Mm -hmm. things go south pretty quickly (laughs) you know when you're not looking the right way or you smell a certain way or you 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 say something that sounds a little off i mean oy vey (laughs) you know it's not easy being us but we have then it's our obligation as parents and as uh, educators to create the environments in which these encounters can occur and then they will learn those skills well, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and you've you know made me think and start learning too. So I'm I'm very grateful for that. It's fun to talk about these things, but it's more fun to learn because that just makes the journey more interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs> you just heard our interview with Paul Castle, Dean of the College of Visual and Performing Arts at NIU and a certified trainer for the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. Up next is our interview with Ruth Spiro, author of Baby Love Science. Kristen, I love the idea of using improv and acting techniques to help experts get more comfortable with the idea of spontaneity in conversations and with the idea of connecting to real-world audiences. I do, too. I think sometimes when we talk about our research, we tend to just pull out a script. You don't engage with the person you're talking to. You just recite something from memory or recite something that makes sense to you and you've you've lost the person you're trying to talk to so I love the the fun of making it spontaneous and you know that we can talk about science and it can be engaging and interesting and exciting I think that happens in a lot of fields. You get so wrapped up in having a perfect elevator pitch that when someone responds well to your elevator pitch you kind of go uh yeah and other things about my project too and and you don't know where to go from there so having that ability to be flexible and to communicate in the moment is so important and no one is more in the moment than babies babies when i first heard about the Baby's Love Science books. I was a little skeptical because the first one that came out, that came to my attention was Baby's Love Quarks. And I said to myself, do they? And I looked at my kids and I said, do they, would they love quarks? I don't know. But what really drew me to Ruth's books was how accessible they were for both parents and for young children. They tell stories about science in such an engaging way with such beautiful pictures that you can't help but get excited about the books and get pulled into the concepts and want to know more. So here's our interview with Ruth Spiro, author of the Baby Love Science board book series. My name is Ruth Spiro, and I live in the suburbs of Chicago, and I am a children's book author. My current series that I have out right now is called Baby Love Science, 
I have another picture book series coming out with Dial, and that one is called Made by Maxine, and it's about a girl who's a maker. My babies love science. (laughs) My babies loved science, and now they're teenagers who love science. Excellent. So it's working. It works. (laughs) Uh, What kind of student were you? Were you were you a baby who loved science? I was not. I was not. I was more of a love to read and do art kind of a gal. I think it just had a lot to do with the fact of the way that science was presented to me when I was a child and the way we were supposed to learn science when we were younger. When I was in school, I just remember science being a lot of memorizing facts and formulas, and it didn't really seem to have any relationship to my real world. And it didn't really inspire any curiosity in me. It just, I didn't really connect with it. And I see the way science is changing in school and how my daughters were taught science and even now how it's all changing. And I feel like if I had been able to participate in some of the classroom science activities now, I might have been a lot more engaged as a student. So that also sort of informs my writing and how I work on these books. To answer your question, no, I was not really a science (laughs) student, but I have, as an adult, become a student of science, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, I think there's so many things that I see that are geared towards kids, and I'm like, can I go to that? Can I play with robots? Yeah, and it's fun. And and the thing is, I'm the kind of person that I always like to learn new things. And I I always said, I don't want to be one of those adults that is afraid of learning new things or learning new technologies or keeping up with what everyone else is doing. And I'd like to continue learning. And so I do sometimes go to these presentations where kids are learning how to code or program robots. Or my husband and I went to Fermilab last year to their open house and, and took a tour and had a chance to talk with some of the scientists. And I just, I love it. And I think that when it's something that you can relate to your own experience, it makes so much more sense. And it's so much more interesting. What type of career did you think you were going to have? I went to college, not really sure of what I wanted to do. And I started out actually as an education major, didn't really connect with that. And I wasn't really sure. And then uh, I found out about advertising. And so I switched into the College of Communications and I got a degree in advertising, and I actually worked in advertising for several years in broadcast production. I was helping to produce radio and TV commercials. I really liked it, but I decided I wanted to go on to graduate school. At one point, in one hand, I had an application for NYU Film School, and in the other hand, I had an application for business school in Chicago. I realized that I couldn't really afford to move to New York and study film, so I decided to go the other route, and I continued working, and I ended up getting an MBA. And my career just kind of evolved from there, and then I was working in research, and I worked at a non-for-profit. I just like to keep my options open. There were all kinds of jobs out there that I didn't know that they existed, but if If I had tunnel vision and said, this is specifically what I want to do, I might be closing myself off to other opportunities that I didn't really even know about. So my career just kind of evolved. Yeah, I think that's interesting that there's not 
really one set path to publishing or to a lot of the creative fields. It's more of like a snowball and an accumulation of all of the things that you love and the things that you learn along the way. And then it turns into this, you know, this artistic passion that you can pursue. Along with some serendipitous (laughs) events. Yeah. (laughs) Keeping your mind open and keeping your eyes and your ears open to opportunities that present themselves. So what was the path then to publishing your first children's book? How did you take all those, all the things that you learned in those different careers and and turn that into a book? Well, that also was not really deliberate. (laughs) (laughs) I was, after I had my second daughter, I decided to stay home. After about two years, I just felt like I needed some kind of intellectual (laughs) stimulation. So I looked for a class that I could take at night. One of the classes that actually fit into my availability was a writing for children class at a local community college. And I had been reading to my children so much. Uh, We went to the library all the time. We read so many books at bedtime. Just reading was very big in our house. And I thought, well, this could be really interesting. And so it was almost a whim that I signed up for a class in writing for children with Carolyn Crimmy who is an absolutely fabulous children's book author. I really enjoyed her class. And she said to me that she thought I was a writer, which was a really lovely compliment. And I continued to write. And she connected me with a critique group of some women that she knew that were writers. It just went from there. I mean, I, it, it was something that, again, I never really planned but it was something that I tried that was new. Um, I kept my mind open. After I tried it, I found that I really enjoyed it. One of the first manuscripts actually I wrote was called Lester Fizz, Bubblegum Artist. I went to the um, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators annual conference in L.A. They had an opportunity where you could pay an extra fee and get a manuscript critique by either an editor or an agent or an author. I was assigned to an author, And she gave me a critique and she gave me some feedback and some suggestions. And then I said, well, what do you think I should do with this? And she said, well, after you make the changes, why don't you send it to my editor and you can use my name? And her editor turned out to be the publisher of Dutton Children's Book. So I sent it to her. One thing led to another. I went through a year of revisions on it. And after a year of that, they decided they wanted to publish it. So I don't really tell the story very often, but it was the first manuscript that I ever submitted, and it was acquired by the first editor who read it, which is a very, very rare story in children's publishing. (laughs) (laughs) But you set yourself up through SCBWI and through the classes that you've taken, so so a lot of it, you know, it it gets to be that combination of, of luck and putting yourself in exactly the right spot at the right time, right? (laughs) Yes, preparedness meets opportunity. Yes. (laughs) Right. Right. So having taken the class, having spent some time writing, having a manuscript that I felt was ready, and then making the right connection, it all just kind of fell into place. Exactly. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what was the genesis of Baby Love Science? In 2010, there was an article that appeared in the New York Times, and it was about how parents were bypassing picture books for their very small children in favor of what they thought was more sophisticated reading material. Picture book sales were way down because parents were, instead of reading picture books, they were moving their kids up to chapter books like 
Frog and Toad and uh, Harry Potter in some cases. And because they felt like picture books were too easy and they weren't challenging enough. And there was a lot of discussion in the children's book community when that article came out because we know that, ch- that picture books are very important developmentally for children. And the parents were misguided in their choices. And I was talking about this with some writer friends, and I just offhandedly said, what do these people want? Quantum physics for babies? <laughs> and when I said that, it was kind of, it was a joke. It was, you know, I was like, oh. But the more I thought about it, I thought, well, so what if I were to try to write about complex science ideas, but in a way that would be accessible to small children. Would that draw children into the field of science and then also draw the parents into the books feeling like, well, this is a topic that is challenging and worthwhile and I would like my child to start learning about this. I I played around with that idea and did a lot of research into child development because that's that's not really my background. But I did a lot of reading about child development and what would be developmentally appropriate for babies, toddlers, preschoolers, and how would they be able to relate to these concepts? Because I didn't I didn't want to make the books humor books. I didn't want them to be a joke. I didn't want it to be like, oh, haha, isn't that funny? Here's my baby reading a book about thermodynamics. I sort of discovered ways of making these topics accessible to small children, but also making them fun and appealing. And I think that was the combination that made them work. And they're great. You know, the quantum physics, maybe the one that mm-hmm. started it all from your joke is, is so cute with the, you know, the, the Schrodinger's cat being alive <laughs> or asleep. And, and, And the funny thing is that I showed that to a group of educators, to preschool teachers, and one thing that I hadn't thought about was they were all looking at that and they're like, oh, this is a perfect example of object permanence for the little kids, for the babies. Right. And I was like, yep. So that, that actually does work. So, you know, the more that I can put into the books to make them valuable and, and interesting and to have multiple jumping off points for conversations or additional exploration and learning, I feel like I, I'm trying to make them as, as jam-packed as possible. So you talked about your research into child development. So what mm-hmm. what research do you do into uh, the STEM fields to make these books happen? You know, I have a, a very long list of possible topics. I like to choose a topic based on whether I can relate it to something that would be in a small child's world, meaning aerospace engineering. It's about flight. And so I start out with watching a bird fly because that's something that we all do with our children. You know, you watch a bird fly, and how does that happen? Well, it's not magic, it's science. The bird can fly because of the shape of its wings. I always look for an entry point based on something that a child would be familiar with. Um, One of the books that's coming out in the spring is Baby Loves Gravity. As a parent, we all know that babies experiment with gravity all the time. (laughs) When they are sitting in their high chair and they drop their crackers to the floor just to watch them fall, or when they roll a ball. That babies know intuitively. Actually, I did research, um, there was a study that was done at Johns Hopkins Babies intuitively understand these laws of physics 
from the age of like, I think it's nine, nine months, 10 months, like they know that if you drop an object, it's not going to hover, that it's going to fall to the ground. So they're already experimenting and beginning to understand some of these laws. What I try to do is pick a topic based on something that would be familiar to a baby or a toddler. And then I research that topic and I have to learn enough about it to be able to distill it down to what are the most important ideas about that topic. So each book really takes a lot of research on my part. And it's a lot of reading. I read books. I go online. I watch videos. I talk to people if I need to. And then we also have an expert reviewer who is a retired physicist. His name is Dr. Fred Bortz. And he reviews all of the text and the illustrations for accuracy because we want to make sure that everything that we are putting into the books is absolutely correct. That sounds like a cool process. It I, does. It's it's hard to imagine people would think that distilling something really complex down to something simple is an easy task. But it's really difficult to take something like quantum physics or thermodynamics and get that down into... It is. It is. It really is. And it's you almost have to learn a ton of information in order to figure out, well, what is the little nugget here? Like, what's the most important thing? And obviously, you know, there's four laws of thermodynamics. I can't cover them all in one book. So I picked the one aspect and the one that I felt was most relatable to a child because I hope that these books will, will be inspiring and they will be jumping off points for learning a little bit more. And I've had parents say to me, oh, I never knew what quantum physics really was. And I say, well... The book really doesn't explain what quantum physics is, but you can go and do a little bit more research and, and find out. And parents actually do. You know, it inspires some parents to, to learn about the, the ideas as well, which I love. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's good. The, you know, the young children and the tired parents who are reading to them get something out of it. Right. right. Because how many times, I mean, Look, we love Good Night Moon, we love Pat the Bunny, but really, how many times can you read those books over and over and over again? And sometimes you just need something that's a little bit different and new. Right. Well, and the kids are asking these questions. I remember when my kids were younger, they were asking some pretty complex questions about the world around them. Mm-hmm. And you were trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I answer that in a way that will encourage the right questions, but also let me go take a nap because <laughs> I'm really tired. <laughs> You're right. That's so That's That's yeah, yeah, you okay. should do some experiments to explore that while mommy lays down. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's so funny. And that, you know, that's kind of been an issue that I've had with our expert reviewer too, is sometimes they'll be like, well, you know, you really should include this and this and this and this. And I have to, you know, keep scaling it back. And I say, well, when I write the text, I imagine that I'm talking to like a three-year-old. And so if they ask a question about this, how would I explain this to a three-year-old? There's limited vocabulary. There are limited ideas that they'll understand. But how, how would you explain something? And you can't put in all these details because they're just going to run the other direction and start, you know, <laughs> playing with whatever toy. So I just, I try to imagine what are the most like what are the bullet points what are the most important ideas about this so if a three-year-old asks a question 
how could you explain it in the in this absolute simplest terms? Mm-hmm. I remember my son one time asking if elephants were made of elements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were having this conversation, I think, as we were eating at a fast food place and trying to explain how an elephant is made of elements. <laughs> and if worms fly, because if birds eat worms oh, and birds what? fly, then worms must fly and eat clouds. So it's like you had to follow the logic and reverse it. So hmm. The conversations you have with three-year-olds is fascinating yeah that really is but i like the way his mind works mm-hmm. that's, that's very interesting yeah there was wow. a there was a quote that i read somewhere that was um when your children start asking questions you learn how much you don't know yes. <laughs> you also learn that you don't need to over answer that sometimes it's a very simple question they don't want to know the whole background behind it. They just want the answer to that one little question. Do worms fly? Do worms fly? And do they eat clouds? <laughs> do they eat clouds? That's fascinating. I like that. I th- you've got a book right there, I a flying so. worm that eats clouds. <laughs> oh, yes. man. And I, Ruth, I want to do a companion piece to your uh, Baby Loves Gravity that would be Mama Hates Gravity. It's just a mom that's like, stop throwing stuff on the floor. Like, uh-huh. Mama is done with gravity. Yes. yes. Well, that's, that's when it's time to get a dog. <laughs> well, yeah, there yes. you go. You right? Dog yeah, loves gravity. <laughs> when we were talking before, you were telling me about your talks about parallel plot lines. And that's something that we've explored on the podcast a little bit, but I think we've taken it in different directions. So the connections between stem and storytelling and the scientific process and the writing process so so what's your take on on that idea last year i was asked to give a presentation to the early childhood stem conference which is put on by the child care center at caltech and every year they have a conference in la you know i was thinking about what did i have to contribute to this as i mentioned i don't have a background in child development nor do i have a background in science but i do feel like In that room of people, I know a lot about writing and storytelling. And so I started to think about the parallels between storytelling and science or STEM. And I realized there were a lot of connections. For example, in both, you have a cause and effect relationship. That's one of the things that you learn about is cause and effect. When you're telling a story, it's all about the plot and the character development and when a character takes one action, you know, there's a cause and effect relationship, just as there is when you're growing a plant and you water the plant and the plant grows because you water it. Sequencing is something that's very important to both. So when you're making, when you're writing a story, you're constructing a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. And really in science, there's also the sequence of steps is very, very important. And similarly in engineering and also like just coding is very, you know, sequencing obviously is very important. Making predictions is something that's very, that's foundational to science. But it's also when you're reading a story, especially out loud to children, they will be making predictions about what happens next. So there are a lot of parallels between the two. And so that was just something I talked about with the educators about how to incorporate storytelling into lessons about science and the various STEM fields. 
And yeah, we do talk similarly about the engineering design cycle, especially with Kristen's mm-hmm. background in engineering. And so we kind of fight back and forth. <laughs> well, and, and, and really, if you think about it, and, and this is kind of going back to my previous background. I mean, I never imagined that I'd be writing books for children. Yet, all of the jobs that I had involved writing in some form, whether it was writing memos or education materials or brochures or whatever. And those writing skills are important to my to what I'm doing now. And similarly, people who are interested in science or any of the other STEM fields may think that writing is not important, but it is because you're going to need to explain the work that you're doing. You're going to need to write, you know, your hypothesis. You need to write out the steps to any kind of experiment that you might do or the, the, the design. So it's all that, it, it, it really is all interconnected. And I love how now so many of the educators are connecting all of these fields together so that you don't have just writing. You don't have, it's not separate from science. It's not separate from uh, engineering or learning to code or math. It's really all interrelated. And I think that when educators make that connection, then you're going to have the kids who think that they're just interested in reading find out, oh, there's some really interesting things about science that, that I can incorporate into my reading or the children who are interested and think that they only like science and math will find that there are aspects of art and design that are related to what they enjoy doing. So I just I think that the more that we can combine all these fields, I think you're going to bring people in and show them that there are aspects to these fields that they didn't think that they were interested in, but really it's all related. It's all connected. I agree with you completely on that. I think that, you know, I get so angry when people say, well, writing is a soft skill, you know, (laughs) it's a soft skill. Someone can figure out how to write what you're doing if you can write the code or something like that. And it's like, no, yeah, (laughs) everyone needs to know how to communicate. Well, and I yeah. think it's it's interesting because the same strategy you use with the the Baby Love Science books that start with something that relates to their world, that's true for anybody who's trying to communicate in, in the STEM fields. I think that's an important lesson that STEM mm-hmm. people need to, to take is if you want people to hear what you have to say, make it relatable to them. Start exactly. with something they know and that engages them. Exactly. And that's actually something I'm working on for my next presentation next month to this year's Early Childhood STEM conference is more about using storytelling to engage. And that's one of the reasons why I feel that these books have connected so well with people is that you can have a concept book and you can say A is for Apple. But really, if you're a pre-reader, you don't, it doesn't make any sense because A is the first letter in the word apple. It's not A and apple have really nothing to do with one another, the letter A. But if you tell a story about how, where the apple comes from and it grows on a tree and it grows on a tree because of the sun shining on it, 
that is something that a small child can relate to because they see apples and they see apples growing on trees. And then it begins to make a little bit more sense. I've, again, been delving into research that shows that when you tell somebody a story, they identify with that idea so much more than if you just present facts and figures. And the storytelling has been shown, like even in in studies on, on MRIs, it lights up areas of a person's brain and makes them feel that they are participating in that story right along with the character. This is just blowing my mind. I mean, it's so interesting, and this is one of the reasons why I feel that the Baby Love Science books, when you have a main character that you can follow through the story, that's what pulls the child in, and that's what helps relate the science idea to their experience and makes it more interesting for them, rather than saying, here's an apple, here's a ball. I mean, those are all valuable concept books, but... When you want to start thinking a little bit further down the road, it's the storytelling that is what really connects with the reader. We agree with all of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're reading all the same research. Right, yeah. Do you have suggestions for parents and teachers who want to instill a love of STEM in their students or, or in their young children? Don't teach it. Don't make it a deliberate, let's learn about flight. Let's learn about plants. Just do it. Just observe and engage in activities and take walks and make observations and ask questions. The more we try to teach something, it's not fun. But if we explore and we experiment and we ask why and we look for explanations, then the learning happens organically. Just have fun. And if you look at the world from the perspective of your child, there's so many things to, to learn about and to explore. One of the things that strikes me most when we've talked to Paul Castle is his idea that science right now is losing the battle for hearts and minds, that we need to be communicating in a more effective way so that we can do nothing short of saving the world. And I think that's why this topic really resonated with me today. I think one of the challenges we have is we are talking across each other. You know, when you're trying to talk about something that's complicated or unfamiliar, or you're trying to learn something new, it's human nature to try to connect it to something you already know. So if we're trying to communicate a science concept, starting where your audience is at, helping them make that connection that engages them into what you're going to hear, what they're going to hear and brings them along with the conversation. I think this is important in the classroom as we're helping students learn new concepts and understand new ideas, approach it in a way that's important to them. It doesn't matter if you're talking to babies about aerospace engineering, talking to students about climate change, or talking to possible funders about your research in energy storage. Your audience probably won't care unless you connect to their hearts and minds. If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.